Some of you know me a little bit, and I haven't had a chance to get to know a lot of you very well yet. I've been here almost a year, which is pretty crazy to think about. I, I, think, I feel like it flew by in some ways, and then I look back at everything that happened. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just lost 10 years of my life. <laughs> but it's been a busy year, but it's been a lot of fun. Um, and I'm just looking forward to, to continue to get to know you guys in the, in the um, coming weeks and months ahead. Something that... Um, I just have always loved to do as, uh, you know, just all throughout my life. I just love this idea of getting in a car and driving and going somewhere. I just love road trips. Um, when I was younger, my dad owned this, um, it was an insurance appraisal company, and he had a region that covered uh, like all, all four of the four corner states, essentially, a, a chunk of them, he, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And one of the things he had to do was drive all over those, th that region and, and go and, and um, take uh, damage assessments of, of car accidents and things like that. And he'd have to drive anywhere from, you know, uh, 800 to 1,500 miles a week. And it was just a lot of fun. And, and he'd always, you know, bring one of uh, me or one of my other siblings along with him. So we got to go to these really cool places. Uh, and and it just it was just a, a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we'd go way up in the mountains in Colorado, and then, you know, the next day we'd be 40 miles on a dirt road on the Navajo Indian Reservation, and you just have no idea where the insurance company is going to need uh, to have um, the, a damage assessment done. And uh, it was just, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of cool, um, cool things I got to see because of that. When I got my driver's license, there really wasn't anywhere I wasn't interested in going. I just, I would look at maps and obsess and dream about you know, things I wanted to do and places I wanted to go and drive to. When I was 21, I took one of my younger brothers, uh, Lauren, and uh, a friend on our first big road trip. We went out to uh, the Grand Canyon and then uh, drove out to Disneyland and then uh, ended up camping for a night on the, on the beach in uh, Pismo Beach, California. And it was a lot of fun. We did the whole trip in four days, 2,400 miles. When we got to the Grand Canyon, we literally got out of our car, looked over the edge, and then got back and then continued. I think we probably stopped to go to the bathroom four times. It was, it was a blast, though. We, we had fun. Some of you probably don't think that sounds quite so much fun. <laughs> When I was 22, uh, when I graduated college, uh, my brother Lauren um, uh, moved from Colorado to Nashville, and so we decided road trip. That was uh, he needed some help with that, and uh, and I was more than willing to jump in the car and go out there and help him get settled and all that. And while we were there, we dropped everything off at the house he was he was um, staying at, and we decided to make it a little mini vacation road trip you know, with Nashville as our hub. And we decided to go to Disney World, which, you know, is only a nine-hour drive from Nashville, so it's literally right outside the city, so it wasn't a big deal to go down there. We um, spent the day there and then drove down to Key West, then drove back, and then I drove back to Colorado in one day, and that was a 22-hour drive, and it was, just, it was just a lot of fun. I could just literally get in the car and not stop. Um, as I grew up, I kind of developed this reputation for being the road trip guy, and I just, I, I'd, I'd text my friends. This is back when we had like those really, really cheap Nokia phones that you had to like press five buttons to be able to get the letter you wanted. Um, and so that's, we'd text, and I'd be like, hey, want to do something crazy? Let's go down to the, the Mexico border today and back. It'd be a lot of fun. I mean, and they'd text back and be like, what do you mean, just go to the border and turn around and come back? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great, doesn't it? And uh, the problem was we lived eight hours from the Mexico border, so they, they didn't think that sounded quite so fun. <laughs> but 
I, I, I would always, you know, pester him and, and try to get, get, get the posse together. And I never really did have success with that one, though. Um, in my uh, senior year of college, I took one of my, well, I, I had two days off from work, which that doesn't happen very often, apparently, for a lot of people. But when I had that two days off, I just had this bug to, I wanted to go somewhere. So I um, looked at a map and I was like, I want to go to Yellowstone National Park. And I talked to one of my brothers, my brother John, who was 15 at the time. So it's like, if you ever want somebody to come do something with you, just ag ask someone who's like 15 years old in your house. And they're most likely to be like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So he was that for me. Um, so we uh, got in the car, and Yellowstone's 11 hours from my house. <laughs> so we got in the car. I run after work. We drove all night, got a hotel, and then spent the day in Yellowstone, camped, drove all the way home the next day. <laughs> it was a blast. I think we listened to the All-American Rejects and uh, Reliant K the entire trip. It was, that was like, that kind of dates it a little bit. <laughs> Even to this day, uh, whenever we're coming up from the north, on the north way and we see that Montreal sign on the, on the road, I always ask Ashley, I'm like, hey, we could go to Montreal. How's that sound? And uh, she's like, no, let's go home. <laughs> and uh, and I, still, I still have to push it. I'm like, but it's only three hours away. We could be there and back before bedtime. And she's like, no. <laughs> so... I don't know. It's just something that I, uh, I've just always have loved to do. There's, there's this idea of going somewhere, seeing something new and, and all that, that just, it gets, and seeing what's around the next turn, it just gets, it's exciting for me. And I think it's exciting just in general for, for all of us. Um, and I think there's something about our relationship with Christ, even, that has the same sense of adventure and journey, uh, and journeying to somewhere new and exciting that, uh, that we have with that, and, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Today in our text, um, we're going to read, be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I actually didn't get a chance to look and see if the translation I have here is the same one there, so I'll just read this so I know we're all reading the same thing. But um, this will be our text this morning. Let's read this together. Now that I have already, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that to God will make clear to you, only let us live to what we have already attained. Such a cool verse. It's probably been one of my favorite verses for years. I just, I love this idea of just going and, and forgetting whatever we've, done, we've had to go through before, knowing that, that today is a new day and we can just look with hope. Uh, on the horizon and what's ahead for us. In this passage of Philippians, Paul is giving us this amazing illustration of perseverance. He happened to be, have written this letter while he was in prison for uh, sharing the gospel. This letter in the Philippians contains some of the most encouraging and convicting verses that you can find in the Bible. Uh, we have verses like, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which suppresses all understanding, will guard your hearts. And knowing this, that he who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Those are from Philippians. Those are written when 
Paul was literally in shackles in a prison cell. Pretty crazy to think about. Paul is such a biblical hero because he exemplifies so well what it means to love and follow Christ no matter the cost. In verse 12 of this text, um, it says, Not that I have already obtained all this, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, forgetting what is behind and pressing towards the goal. In 1924, in the Olympics of 1924 in Paris, an athlete from Scotland named Eric Liddell became front-page news. Liddell is the runner at the center of the story in the famous movie Chariots of Fire. The athletes in the final race were bunched together as they came to the first bend. Liddell was pushed over and fell back to the track. Quick as a flash, he was back to his feet as though, and as though electrically charged by the incident, he caught the other runners with a few paces to go and overtook them on the finish line. It was a famous victory, a victory that set up Liddell to win the gold in the event. The crazy thing is Liddell was not even expected to medal in the 400 meters as his, as his primary event was the 100 meter race. But the 100 meters was run on a Sunday and because of Liddell's Christian conviction, he decided to withdraw his name from that competition so he could actually be able to preach at his church on Sunday. So it's kind of a crazy story. Um, and I think this idea of perseverance and just like, like, I don't know if any of you guys seen that movie, Chariots of Fire, it's kind of older and a little hokey when you watch it now, but you know, it's got that soundtrack and everybody's like, oh yeah, this is, this is such a good movie. Um, I don't know. If you, if you want to go watch it sometime, if you like cheesy 80s movies, it's, or not che it's a great movie, but it's, it's clearly 80s. <laughs> but I think this idea of perseverance is something many people know exactly what it is when we see it, but when it comes to us, you know, living that quality out, it's like, it, it's, it's hard. You know, we, we feel like it's, it's just, we always miss that mark. Um, and there's something amazing when we see an athlete overcome the odds and win. I love during the Olympics when they show these uh, profile stories of athletes to help you get to know them better. Uh, it gives you this, this kind of connection and appreciation to see how hard they had to work to get where they are today to be in the Olympics. Um, how they had to walk two hours at 4 a.m. to get to the closest training facility that didn't even have air conditioning. And, and how they had to um, overcome some horrendous um, life situation like, uh, like cancer or death of a spouse or child or, or uh, uh, some, uh, you know, recuperating from some horrific accident. And it's, it's always about this idea of overcoming to, to get to where they were today. In this passage in Philippians, Paul is giving us this illustration of an athlete running a race. Because so much of our relationship with Christ runs parallel to this type of, this type of perseverance and, and follow-through that a runner needs to have to be able to be the first finish line. It's just, it's a great reminder for us to think about this kind of thing. Paul likens our journey with Christ to someone who hasn't yet arrived at the finish line. But they are straining for the goal, forgetting what is behind and pressing on till they arrive. It's a journey, and it's about each moment as it comes, forgetting what is behind and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that's, that's one of the hardest things that, um, that we have to do as, as, as Christians, is, is keeping our eyes fixed and not wavering from that. You've probably heard the phrase that you don't run a marathon all at once. You run it one step at a time. It'd be cool if the Greys were here today, because they could be like, yeah, that's so true. Look, they've, they've done like two marathons at once, and it's just kind of, it's crazy. I can't imagine. 
but it's about one step at a time. Our Christian journey is much the same. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33 through 34, um, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble in its own. God doesn't want us to get bogged down in thinking about what's ahead and, and worrying about all this uncertainty that we can't even control. He wants us to be in this moment now and let God care about that next moment and, and, and the next one after that. And not to say we don't plan and think ahead, but when it comes to being so consumed with those things, running the race is about one step at a time. In the movie The Fellowship of the Ring, it's a great movie, and you will definitely show your nerd level by showing how excited you are about this part. But there's the scene where Elrond, <laughs> you stand up there, Elrond, the head elf, he gathers all these people to come up with a plan for destroying the ring. And in case you don't know, the ring is actually bad. It's not like a good ring. And, and it's, um, it's kind of like been the root of a lot of issues in, in, the, in the trilogy. We're going to watch this short scene, and, and, and you kind of get this, this, um, this idea that this isn't going to be an easy task. In fact, there's a strong possibility of things going very wrong, and, uh, and possibly not even being able to make it back. It really sets the stage for the whole story and where this, this goes from here, and I just want to take a minute and we'll watch this clip together. You have only one choice. The ring must be destroyed. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. Where now? I will take your I will take the ring to Mordor. No. I do not know the way. I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. By my life or death, I can protect you. 
my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. You need people of intelligence on this sort of mission. Quest. Thank you. Well, that rules you out, Pip. My companions. So be it. You shall be the fellowship of the ring. Right. Where are we going? <laughs> I love that part. Where are we going? <laughs> Clueless. Um, so I love the, the memes you see on Facebook with Boromir, where it's like, you know, he's like, one does not simply wake up at 4 a.m. and run five miles. <laughs> They're just really funny when I see those on Facebook. So I, I kind of feel like sometimes we get more focused on this idea of arriving on our journey that we lose sight of what it takes to actually get there. If all that we remember about that story about Eric Liddell was that he crossed the finish line, it would just really be another race in the books. There would be nothing about it worth, worth getting excited about. And if all we saw in the Lord of the Rings trilogy was a shot of Frodo just at Mount Doom, dropping the ring in the fire, and that was all we saw, then we'd be kind of disappointed. What makes these things exciting is what these people had to go through to get to the finish line, the journey they had to go on to arrive at the goal. And for those of you who have seen the movies, and I hope a lot of you have, they're awesome. Um, it get, the, the journey's crazy. I mean, a lot, there's like so much that happens and so many things that cause them to just want to give up or, or it's it just, it's a really exciting story. When we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, there's not, it's not the end of the journey. When, yes, there's this moment, yes, at that moment, it's, it, it literally changes our life and ultimately determines our eternity. But the moment of our, the journey is just beginning. What, when we say yes to Christ, and this, and and allow, and allowing Him to be the Lord of our life, it's it's this it's this it's not it, it that's not the completion of it. It's just it's just started, and it's something that that is exciting, but also can be kind of scary at the same time. It's a life of being transformed and renewed for God's glory, to impact our world in a way that will push back the strongholds of sin and darkness and usher in the kingdom of God. I mean, that sounds like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff, right? I mean, that's literally what we are being able to participate in as we, um, as we go on this journey with, with Jesus Christ. Although our Christian journey may not be as foreboding and ominous as what Frodo had to go through when he carried the ring across Middle Earth. We can still experience that same feeling of stumbling and waywardness and not knowing what to do and where to go. It's not that those feelings are bad, and it's, 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 it's really just what we do with them. Do they take us down or cause us to give up from that race? In today's society, we start something with noble intentions of succeeding at it. It happens every year at January. Most people will make a resolution and have the most noble intentions of following through with whatever that is, and then 87% of them will not be kept. It's just, it's, it's just what happens. It's hard to see things through. 
when, 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 we, um, when things get more difficult than we expected or when they're, when they're not as fun and glamorous as we thought it might be. You know, running a marathon sounds pretty exciting, but, I mean, getting to that point, not so much. I mean, there's, that's, it's, it, it's a lot that you have to go through and follow through with that goal. In today's society, we often start some... I'm sorry, let me, let me go forward here. And we can say, say we have this goal that it's, it's something that we want to see happen in our life and maybe even something that we want to see down the road um, and eventually, something like eventually eat healthier, or like eventually I want to have enough money or get that raise at my job so I can get out of debt or whatever that is. Or eventually, when things start to look up, I'll have a better attitude at work or a better outlook on things. We don't know when eventually is, but we hang on to this idea of someday getting there. This thinking directly crosses over into our relationship with Christ. We have this idea that one day I'll feel closer to God. One day I'll pray more. One day I'll be kind and gentle-spirited in my actions towards those around me. One day, I'll have a spiritual passion to be salt and light in the world, ready and willing to be used by God in any moment. As Christians, I think we all want these things, but if, if we're not there yet, then at what point do we begin to see them in our life? At what point do we arrive at that eventually? When will we arrive at the place when when we feel like we're a spiritual giant or on fire for God, a person that's like this proverbial garden of spiritual fruit, you know? It's like we want that in our life. The famous British theologian N.T. Wright says in, in a reference to what Paul is writing here in Philippians that true maturity actually means knowing that you haven't arrived and that you must still keep pressing on forwards towards the goal. The seasoned athlete knows that the race isn't won and lost until the end has been reached. To imagine that because you find yourself out in front of the pack, you can slack off and take it easy, having arrived would be disastrous. True maturity actually means pressing on regardless of where you are in the race, regardless of how many times you fall down and, and get off track. Paul says we should forget those things and get back to the race and press on. So is that, is that it? Is that like all that's to it? I just need to work harder and not give up when the going gets tough um, and press on even when I don't feel like it. I mean, that doesn't sound super exciting, honestly. I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty difficult. Fortunately for us, that's not it. As I was preparing for this message this week, I was thinking about this passage in Philippians and wondered how the Holy Spirit fits into this image of a runner competing in a race. This led me to think about some of the ways the Holy Spirit actually functions in our lives as Christians today. It says in John 16, verse 8, that the Spirit of God convicts both unbelievers and believers of all sin and righteousness. Convicts meaning he reveals to us what we are doing wrong, as well as the things we are doing right. He anoints us with divine power, Acts 1.8. He guides us into all truth and teaches us all things, John 16.13. And he is our helper and our comforter in this life, John 14.26. 
For those of you who've played sports, you've probably um, encountered some of these traits in your coach, hopefully in a positive way. Um, a coach is someone who wants to see you succeed and be all that you can be. A coach tells you what you're doing well and how you need to get better. He gives you insight on technique and ways you can master a certain skill. He calls you out when you aren't listening to his instruction and making the same mistakes over and over. A coach gives you a hug when you're frustrated and beating yourself up. He runs out and helps you when you fall down, and he gives you that bit of encouragement that you need to finish strong. His motivation and encouragement can ultimately determine whether you will be mentally and physically prepared to win. There are a couple of things I want to talk about in how the Holy Spirit works in and through us as we go on our journey with Christ. First, in order for the Holy Spirit to be able to work in our lives like a metaphorical coach, we need to be willing to be led and guided by him. We need to be coachable. We need to live in complete surrender to the will of God. This requires us to admit that we are doing things wrong or might be doing things wrong. This could be anything from an area of sin, a bad attitude, something wrong that is ultimately hindering us from glorifying God with every area of our life. In sports, you often hear um, coaches talk about athletes on how coachable they are. If you follow the New York Knicks, you've probably heard Carmelo Anthony be the prime example of that. Um, that means that whether the athlete is open to instruction and open to be willing, uh, willing to be told that they're not doing it right or they need to be doing it differently or, or something needs to change to improve. They're not coachable. When it comes to the way the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working in our life, how coachable are we? This is hard because it requires us to be honest with where we really are in our spiritual journey. We probably need to come to terms with some things that, that are, are a little difficult for us. And maybe even if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a long time or have that, that kind of mindset that says you've got it figured out or you're all good, um, it might, there, maybe some humility might be order where, where God is like, you know, you're not the answer to my prayers. I can do this without you. I need you to be humble. <laughs> I need you to be coachable. Sometimes that's God's response to us. Um, you might remember that old show, American Idol. It's so old, right? <laughs> I, I think it got canceled before, and uh, then, it, then they brought it back, and uh, then they canceled it again, and I guess they're going to bring it back. <laughs> Who knows? Um, one of the funniest and hardest things to watch on that show was when they had a contestant audition who was convinced that they were the next American Idol. They would spend like five minutes talking about how great they were, how they had what it took, and then they would get up there to sing, and the judges' faces would just be like in shock and horror, and it was hilarious. But you're just like wondering, did this person literally think they were the next American Idol, or are they just trying to get on the camera and make a fool of themselves, or what was actually happening there. But I really do think some people have that idea that I am just that good. I am so the bomb. So, it, and <laughs> it's, it's funny, because you, you, you almost feel embarrassed for them. And, uh, and you, um, you wonder, did they just not have somebody in their life telling them, look, you really should think twice about this. I really don't know if you should go on that show. Maybe you should take some lessons first or try to get uh, a little bit better. Like, 
they didn't have anyone, you know, telling them that. Or maybe they did and they just didn't listen. I recently read this book called The Self-Aware Leader by a guy named Terry Leonard. He talked about this idea of having personal blind spots in how we live our lives. Um, these are things we are doing or not doing that can ultimately hinder us from succeeding in our life and work. It was a really interesting book. He started out with the story about a time early in his career in ministry. He was working in a large student ministry, ministry where he thought things were just going amazingly well. One day out of the blue, he was called in to meet with his executive director, and in that meeting, he was unexpectedly and with little explanation let go from his position. Terry writes, Though the reasons were unclear, my supervisor made a few comments about fit and people problems. I couldn't hear the details because of the shock and because of the shock wave that came over me. Though a variety of external factors contributed to my dismissal, the process exposed some problematic personal patterns I couldn't see. They had been, they had been an issue for years, but I was too busy, forward-driven, and self-confident to notice. Now it seemed as if a stack of overstuffed bags from my past had suddenly burst open, and I stared at a well-worn spiritual, emotional, and social mess. Some of the issues I recognized, others like veiled anger and a competitive spirit seemed so alien to me. They grew more evident to me once I started to reflect on my, my recent life. I remembered a scene from a few weeks before I was dismissed when I, was ex when I exploded in anger on a basketball court with mostly unchurched high school students. I was mad and loudly arguing with very young men I wanted to share the love, of grace, love and grace of Christ with. Of course, they hadn't been calling fouls the right way, but what was worse is that I was, obvious, uh, that I was oblivious to my actions and emotions and completely missed what they were signaling about me. Some of us might have a blind spot in our life, an area that, might not even notice, that we might not notice right now or think that it's something to even worry about. But that blind spot is something that could keep us from succeeding in this race. It could be a sin, a bad attitude, or anything that is not honoring to God. As a coachable follower of Christ, one of the things we need to do is develop this ongoing conversation with the Holy Spirit that starts with us simply asking, Lord, are there any blind spots in my life? Is there anything I'm missing? Something I need to surrender to you that I'm hanging on to for myself? I guarantee you things will come up. A past conversation with your spouse, something that happened at work, something you just need to make right, or something maybe a little bit bigger than that. If we develop that kind of a habit of having that kind of a conversation with the Holy Spirit, that is the kind of mentoring and, and coaching that will really help us finish this race strong and, and really make an impact for God's kingdom. Looking back at the N.T. Wright quote I shared a minute ago, it says, true maturity actually means knowing you haven't arrived and that you must still keep pressing on forwards towards the goal. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said this wonderfully deep and inspiring quote that you probably see on every Instagram account at one point or another. It says, life isn't about the journey. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. But you guys all know what I'm, I'm going to say. <laughs> it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And then you have the cheesy bumper sticker version, which is, 
The journey is the destination. So fun, right? <laughs> Sometimes we get so caught up in this idea of going somewhere and the goal at the finish line that we forget this idea of journeying and being in the here and now. What that means is that when it comes to a relationship with Christ, there's no better time than now. There's no better time than now to say, Jesus, I choose to follow you. We're doing ourselves a tremendous disservice when we approach our faith in Christ with this idea that one day I'll be in a place where I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ, but not now. One day I'll be better at praying, trusting God, and giving thanks in all circumstances. One day I'll be better at forgiving others, but right now I'm content to hold on to a couple of grudges. One day I'll be more caring and generous, but right now I need to focus on my issues. One day I'll stop doing this thing or that thing. I could go on and on, but the point is there's no better day than today to go deeper in our relationship with Christ. There isn't this point of arrival where the stars align and you suddenly feel like loving God more and being a better follower of Christ. The only way this can happen is when we allow the Holy Spirit into our life to lead us and guide us. When we say, God, have your way with me. You're the potter, I'm the clay. The second way we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, in this race, is by him revealing the fatherly heart of God to us. In verse 13 of, of our text, it says, I do not consider myself to, yet to have taken hold of it, but I, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Guys, this is the gospel message, essentially. We forget what is behind, not because the only thing that matters is what's ahead at the finish line. We forget what is behind because Jesus paid the price for it. No matter the sin we lived in and how bad things were yesterday or 10 years ago, Jesus paid the price. That's why we can forget what is behind and press on towards the goal. The glory of the cross and the gospel is that all of our mistakes and all those things in our past, those, the, those have been forgotten in God's eyes. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, then, is helping us walk in the understanding of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. We don't have to carry that burden of, past and, of the past anymore, and because of that, we're able to focus on the goal. The knowledge and power of God's love in our life is what enables us to run this race, not our discipline and determination not our own strength. There's, there's no way we can finish if that's what we are relying on. When I was younger, I remember watching the 1996 women's gymnastics team on TV. I think it was like 12 or so. Um, I just I had a crush on one of them. So anyways, um, it was the year of that, the Magnificent Seven, and some of you might remember that. The morning after they won the gold medal, there was this picture that was on the front page of every newspaper in the country. So some of you might know exactly what picture I'm talking about. Sports Illustrated writes in 100 Greatest Sports Moments. Going into the final rotation of the team competition with the Russians on floor exercise and the U.S. on vault, the U.S. women held a commanding 0.897 lead over the Russian team. 
At that point, it was still possible for the Russians to take the gold if the U.S. women collapsed. The first four gymnasts landed their vaults, but struggled to land them cleanly, taking steps and hops. To add to the drama, Dominique Mochianu on the American team fell twice, registering a poor score. Carrie Strug was the last to vault for the United States. On Strug's first vault, she, she under-rotated the landing, causing her to fall and damage her ankle. As a result, the attempt was awarded a low score of 9.162. Retrospectively, after a poor performance from the Russian team and the Russian Rosa Galieva on floor, Mochiana's score of 9.2 would have been sufficient to beat the Russians, even if Strug had not performed a second vault at the, as the lowest score for each team was dropped. However, Galieva performed after Strug, and therefore Strug needed to land a second vault on her feet in order to mathematically clinch the gold. In the time interval between Strug's two vaults, she asked her coach, Bella Caroli, do we really need this? Do I really have to do this second vault? He replied, Carrie, we need you to go one more time. We need you in order to win the gold. You can do it. Strug limped to the end of the runway to make her second attempt. She ran with full gusto and landed the vault perfectly. She stuck the landing briefly on both feet, but almost instantly, hopping onto her good foot, saluting the judges, she then collapsed onto her knees and needed assistance off the landing platform. To which sportscaster John Tesh commented, Carrie Strug is hurt. She is hurt badly. The completed vault received a, a very high score of 9.712, guaranteeing the Americans the gold medal. Her coach, carried her out to the medals podium so she could join her team in receiving their gold medal. Strug was treated for a third-degree lateral sprain and tendon damage immediately after taking the gold for, for her team, which kept her, the, the injury ultimately kept her from competing in the individual all-arounds. Carrie Strug's resilience and her performance became one of the most her heroic and inspiring moments of the Atlanta Olympic Winter Games, or Summer Games, sorry. And uh, the picture that appeared in the papers everywhere was, was this um, picture of her coach carrying her with her um, brace on her ankle. It was such an awesome image because it conveyed this commitment and bond between an athlete and her coach. How many of you have seen this before? Most of you, yeah. It, and it just like, I remember seeing it and I'm like, that's so cool. Just seeing... Um, you know, her having, you know, pushed so hard and the support and um, backing she had from her coach and just that almost father heart of God you can kind of see in this picture where we fall and we struggle and God is there waiting to pick us back up. The Holy Spirit, much, much like a coach, is for us, enabling us, calling us out and building us up comforting us in moments of difficulty, and giving us all the grace, strength, and power we need to make it across the finish line. It's so cool knowing that we're not in this alone, and God gives us everything we need to succeed. We just have to be willing to let him. As we close this morning, I'd like to just take a moment for us to respond uh, just simply as, this, as a church. And uh, this could look different for all of us. It doesn't have to be this big thing. But before we do that, I feel like we've been talking a lot about this idea of 
what it means to forget what's behind and to look ahead. And I don't know if there's any of you in here today who have not even made that decision to say, Jesus, I choose to follow you. Jesus, I want to surrender to you this morning. And if that is you, um, I would just, I would invite you to just respond and, and raise your hand so we can, you know, maybe pray with you after service and get to know you a little bit. Um, we would, uh, we would love to wa- begin walking this journey with you. Is there anyone here this morning who would like to make that decision this morning to follow Christ? Amen. And then the next aspect of this is are there things that we feel like are keeping us from running the race with all we got and being all that we can for Jesus Christ? Are there blind spots in our life? Have we ever prayed a prayer that simply asked God, reveal to me those things that I can't see in my life that, that are keeping me from running with everything I've got? I would just invite you to pray that prayer. Maybe on a, on a regular basis, you know, just be like, God, what am I missing today? Can, can you help me, you know, speak a, a more loving word to somebody? Or how, how can I be more Christ-like in that circumstance? And the third thing i just like, to, like us to respond to is just those of us who are really struggling to see the love and forgiveness of God in our, in our everyday life. Maybe we just feel like we're in this like spiritual desert where it's, just, it's like we have been in the trenches and we've forgotten what being in God's loving embrace feels like. And we just need that this morning. I just want to invite all of us to stand. We're going to sing this song together and um, just think about those, those things we've kind of, we've, we've unpacked this morning about what it means to being empowered by the Holy Spirit as we go on our journey with Jesus Christ together. Let's sing this.